Well, really excited about this series we've just started called, obviously, Knock Off. And what we're doing is looking at the things that are in our world that actually mirror transcendent values. They mirror things in the heavenly realm. They mirror the character of God and seeing whether or not we have the real version of that or a knockoff, cheaper version of it. Uh, as excited I am about this one, I'm probably even more excited about the next series we have. It's called uh, Journey Home. And I just want to give you a heads up. In a few weeks, it's going to be starting. I want to encourage you to clear your calendars as best you can. Every year, we have a topic that we do a deep dive on and look at. And this one is one where we look at whether or not we feel truly accepted by God. Now, if you've ever felt like you have to perform, you're only as good as your last success, you feel like you're rejected, you feel like people are constantly judging you, you feel like you don't measure up, you feel like you've got to earn your parents' approval, you feel like uh, you feel bad if you're not in a success mode. All these things are what's called normal, and we're going to look at how these have spiritual roots. So we're going to give you small group material. Many of us are going to be for the first time in a small group. We're going to give you material to do at home. Just getting you ready for that. Just gear up. It could be life-changing. Truly. And have you ever noticed why it is certain things move us? Why is that? Leonard Bernstein, the greatest, arguably the greatest musical composer of our time, said that even though he's an agnostic, whenever he hears Beethoven's fifth, something stirs inside of him to where he considers perhaps there actually is a God. Beethoven's fifth doesn't do it for me personally. It's Leonard Skinner's Free Bird. I mean, when I hear that, if I leave here tomorrow... You guys don't, aren't moved by that at all. If I was you, I'd be crying right now. Amazing. <laughs> Leonard Skinner long version. Some of the 13 best minutes you can spend in a lifetime listening to that. Amazing stuff. All of us see things that really you know, inspire us. And, and marriage is one of these things that inspires us. When we see it done well, it totally, totally moves us. My in-laws are... Uh, I've been married now for 50, I'm guessing now 57 years, 50-some years. Uh, they're volunteers. They volunteer out at the information center. They might be out there right now. And uh, I heard a story of somebody who saw them leaving their post and walking to the car. They're older. Uh, they moved from Pittsburgh to Cincinnati to help Lib and I be a part of the church and start it with other folks. And uh, this person said as they walked, she watched them go out to their car. They've gotten older. They've got some joint problems that are coming in. And they were leaning into one another, supporting one another as they walked to their car. The beauty of that, even just uh, rethinking about that in my mind, almost makes me get a bit emotional because there's something beautiful about it. Well, why, why does that kind of commitment move us? Why is it that marriage is in every culture, in every time period, in every corner of the globe? Let me say that again. The idea of a man and a woman coming together and being committed forever and ever and ever. There's some variances, like some cultures that might be multiple wives and such like that. But for the most part, and why is it so contentious? The gay marriage, should they be married, should they not be married? Uh, divorce, you should be able to be married for divorce. You're not, there's all this contentiousness about marriage. And why? Why is that? I mean, we're not upset about, you know, whether or not you should have cornhole 24 feet or 26 feet. We're not upset about those things. But yet marriage, it's, again, let me say it again. Man and a woman trying to do it forever is in every culture, in every time period, in every corner of the globe. And it's because God has planted this in us because we're created in the image of God. And there's certain things that we do that are mirror of the eternal realities. And if you're not aware of the eternal realities, 
you may have a knockoff, a knockoff version. Next week we're going to talk about singles, singleness, and how actually singleness is very transcendent as well. And many of us have, have, a, have a bad view about being single, and we're going to come against that next week. But for this week specifically, I want to come against the bad views we have of marriage. I have right now two versions on my wrist of Rolex watches. Yes, one is a Rolex, one is a knockoff. One is worth $5,000, one is $50. I'm just curious. Can you tell what? Who, can you tell which one? Who, who thinks that this is the Rolex? Okay. Who thinks that? All right. There you go. Cheers. There. Who thinks that this one is the Rolex? A little more cheering for this one. You know. Uh, yeah. You really. It's hard to really tell. You know which is which. You don't know which one is the knockoff. You really. You can't really tell which one is it is. You you don't know. This was the knockoff. Yes, it was. It was. I just had a look at that. It is the knockoff. Um, whew, I'm so glad you picked that one because I had an expense account to cover 50 bucks, not $5,000. Good stuff. So, but what we're trying to do is identify the knockoff brands we want to eliminate. Now, many of us right now, we're in marriages that are knockoff marriages. They're less expensive than they should be. They're not as costly and they're not as transcendent and as valuable. And what happens in our culture is we trend to, we don't even know there's a better ideal. We don't even know there's a higher ideal. We have this idea that the way I get married is I find the soulmate. Once I find my right soulmate, marriage will be happy and it'll be fun. It's really seen beautifully in a, in a well-known celebrity who had just met his, his soulmate. Here's what he said about his soulmate, just as he was getting ready to, uh, his quote-unquote soulmate, just as he was getting ready to marry her. He says this, I didn't realize something was missing until my future wife came along, and I just went, huh? How, how could I not know that I've been missing this all my life? You can think about this kind of person you like to be with, but then when it suddenly happens, it's in a way that you just didn't expect. I just felt, oh my God, this is actually happening to me. I knew almost as soon as I met her, I thought, I'm going to be with this woman. So it looks like he's one of the lucky ones. He gets his soulmate. And who was his soulmate? It was Katie Holmes. This is Tom Cruise talking about Katie Holmes <laughs> years ago. And by the way, in this article, he talks about how his previous two wives, he found out were not his soulmate. Now, I'm not trying to crack on Tom, Holm, uh, Tom Cruise, though it's fun to do so. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just, I'm just trying to say that Tom Cruise really epitomizes for all of us. He's, he, this is what we think marriage is. If I don't have a good marriage, I don't find the right one. I can't really get married until I find the perfect one. Someone totally satisfies me on all this stuff. And this is not the way God mirrors marriage. Marriage is like this. It's two people who are relationally committed together because God, when we come in relationship with Him through Jesus, He relationally and completely commits. He marries us. He weds us. Let me give you some verses from the Bible that shows that God is the groom who weds and is committed to us. Isaiah 62.5 As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride... So shall your God rejoice over you. So there's going to be some stuff today for people who are married and for anybody who has a relationship with God. This was, what this saying, is saying here is that just as a groom is at the end of the aisle and sees the bride coming down and is excited, oh, so when God sees you coming closer to him, he rejoices. God rejoices over you. Beautiful, isn't it? Here's another one. Matthew 22, 29 to 30. The context here is people are asking Jesus, wait, well, hey, what happens? Like, who's married to who in heaven? I mean, what if someone divorces this person and marries that person? I mean, who, who, who's married in heaven? What if somebody hit, gets hit by a car or uh, rather hit by a camel and, uh, you know, and they die? And then later on you go to heaven. So who's married to who? 
Jesus says this. Uh, Jesus answered them, you're wrong. I love that. Jesus, nice, lovely, lovely guy. He says, you're wrong. You're wrong. That's it. You, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He says in the resurrection, a deep concept, way, way at the end of all things. There is no need for marriage. Marriage is over and done because we are with God, right with Him, just like angels are right with God right now. So marriage is a temporary institution that lasts as long as the earth lasts, and it lasts to mirror how God will always be with us relationally forever. The book of Revelation, chapter 19, 7, gives another way. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Now, that word lamb is capitalized there. The lamb refers to Jesus. The marriage of the lamb to his bride, to the church, to those who have received him. And so anyone who has a relationship with him is married to him. I came to know Jesus when I was 15, 16 years old. Uh, you know, read, started reading the Bible, went to seminary, came out of seminary. I didn't learn this. I had a knockoff view of marriage. I didn't get it until some, someone taught this to me sometime later that marriage is not a good thing you do to have kids and to be close with uh, your wife. You know, marriage actually is a replica of how God is wedded to us. God is relationally committed to us. This is huge. God relationally commits. And this is unique to the God of the Bible. If you look at other forms of religion or pop spirituality, this is very rare. There's a person with a personality and an identity who commits. Let's just look at our culture, our pop spiritual culture. A number of years ago, runaway bestseller, Rhonda Burns, The Secret. There's no God who personally commits in The Secret. You invite things to yourself as you think about them. As you have thoughts and invite them to yourself. There's no other entity that's committed to you personally and brings anything into your life. Eckhart Tolle's New Earth talks about the earth gets renewed as we have egos and we suppress our ego. I think that's what he was saying in the book, so it's very hard for me to understand. <laughs> but for sure, this is true. He's not saying at all that there's a God that cares for you, that loves you, that is committed to you. Buddhism, Hinduism, no, no concept at all in those spiritualities that there is a personal God that loves and is committed to you. This idea that we have about marriage, even if someone has never heard of the Bible before, we have this longing because God has put, us, put it into us because men and women are created in the image of God. God relationally, not relationally, everything. He legally, financially, sexually, socially, um, emotionally, he commits. And that's when the best marriages happen, when we are committing all in. in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verse 6, it says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. I love this tenderness, this, this tenderness, sexual intimacy that God uses to describe his feelings for us. I saw you, I love you, I put my, I covered you. And he talks about a covenant. I made a covenant with you, and you became mine. Every great marriage is when the other person is yours and when you are theirs. Not when you're a partnership, when you are one, you are inextricably linked, you're, you're tied together. person who's uh, been impactful for my life, I've spent some time with him, he's a great guy, great thinker, his name is Tim Keller. He's my favorite, uh, actually my favorite uh, preacher, he's out of, a, out of Manhattan. 
uh, written a number of books. Virtually, at least half of what you've heard me say that's interesting started with Tim. Um, actually, before that started in the Bible. And he recently, or a few years ago, got invited to Google to speak. Because what Google does, they try to stretch the minds of their employees in areas that they uh, normally wouldn't be dabbling in. And they asked him to come in and talk about the quote-unquote Christian view of marriage. And I could replay a couple minutes of what he said, but I thought you'd benefit just to see it directly as he spoke to Google. Just check this out. Why do I need a piece of paper to tell you I love you? The piece of paper, the marriage thing, it's, just, it's, it's legal, it's, it's, not, it's not the essence of marriage. The essence of marriage in that view is passion and feeling. That's the essence of marriage, not contracts and legal things. Um, on the contrary, the Christian view of marriage is that the essence of marriage is a long-term binding commitment epitomized in a covenant or a legal contract. A long-term binding commitment is the essence of marriage, not the passion and feeling, because that comes and goes, and comes, and then goes, and then comes. The thing that actually is the essence of marriage is that long-term binding commitment through a covenant. And here's the reasons why that's so important. And I know this is counterintuitive to contemporary people. First of all, uh, the legal covenant actually makes marriage more intimate more intimate, not less. You know, there's two basic kinds of relationships. I'm going to call them consumer and covenant. A consumer relationship is like the relationship you have with your local grocer. Uh, you have a relationship with the grocer as long as the grocer is giving you produce at uh, a good produce at a good cost. But if you find somebody who gives you much better produce at a much better cost, you're going to go to the other grocer. Why? Because your individual needs are more important than the relationship. In a consumer-vendor relationship, your needs are more important than the relationship. In a covenant relationship, let's give you another example, parent-child. You're raising a child, the child cries, the child's selfish, the child's ill-behaved, and you can't say, I've had it, like you can with a grocer, and just leave the child on a somebody else's doorstep, you'll go to jail. And the reason is, at least our understanding is, your relationship with your child is not a consumer-vendor relationship. It's a covenant relationship. Now, when you're dating somebody or seeing somebody or having a relationship with somebody, a romantic relationship, but you're not, you know, you're not married, you know the other person could walk away any time. And therefore, you're essentially in a consumer relationship in spite of all the rhetoric. Uh, in other words, you're still basically in marketing and promoting yourself. You have to. You've got to literally put your best face on because that other person could walk. But when you get married and when you, have, when, and when you say, I'm bound to you through thick and thin, and when you have that legal contract, you actually, it creates a, a cradle of security for your vulnerability. It makes it possible to say, here's who I am and here's what's wrong. It makes it possible for you to actually be more intimate, more yourself, just a piece of paper. It's interesting, um, it's interesting how when we think about marriages, you know, we go to the quote-unquote altar and uh, we're not committing, trying to convince everybody that we love the person now. We're committing and declaring, I will love you as you become a different person. It's the future thing. I mean, my wife, Libby's been married to four different guys. I've, I've been at least four different people since we've been married for almost 25 years. And she has too. And I'll tell you what, there's a beauty and a stability when you know there is a human that is to you what God is to you. A human that is to you that says, I am committed to you even as you change, even as you morph, I'm in. I'm in. 
And this is uh, one of the things that happens when we're knockoff marriage or a knockoff relationship. We're trying to pretend like it's a marriage, trying to pretend it's committed, but, but it really may not be. Now, uh, one of the things I love about Crossroads, we have all different beliefs, all different lifestyles coming here. I love that, love that, love that. And I know we've got a lot of people in here, all the different sites who are in here who are living together. And I love that. I love, love that. Because I love that just we're a, just a place that has different attitudes and perspectives. It's one of the beauties uh, about Crossroads. And that people are coming here open for being pushed every once in a while. So I want to push on those of us a little, for a little bit who, who believe it's okay. Uh, there's no difference between being living together and not, or maybe I ought to do that for myself, or, or just let me push on you a little bit. Let's have you think about this. You know, when I used to do weddings a lot, when I didn't have to work weekends and I would do weddings, one of the more harrowing parts of the service was the vows. Because these two people are really freaked out, and you'd kind of start giving them the vows, and, and they would forget them. So you'd go, start off with long sentences, and they would forget the sentence. So then you have to go down and make them real short. It would, some of them would be literally like this. I, I, take, take, you, you, John, John, two, two, B, B, my, my, be loved, beloved, wife. And it, was, it would be like that. And uh, I started thinking, what would it be like if we actually gave vows before we moved in with somebody? What would those vows look like? I got a jump start in this from a magazine, a satirical magazine called The Door, and I've adapted these, what these vows might look like. Uh, check this out. I, John, take you, Mary, to be my cohabitant, to have sex with you and share the bills that are pre-agreed upon. I'll be around while things are good, but I'm open to ha leaving if things get too tough. If you should get a cold, I'll run to the drugstore and get NyQuil. If you get sick to the point where you can no longer meet my needs, then I retain the right to move on. Forsaking old boyfriends and girlfriends, I will be more or less faithful to you for as long as it feels good to me. I commit to live with you for as long as this works out. If we should break up, I will always say that our time together was special. <laughs> Isn't that really what's being said there? And, and, and truth be told, many marriages are in here that basically, if reality, that's really what your vows were when you thought when you got married. And these knockoff kind of relationships though they may be utilitarian, helpful in some ways, it's not the ultimate beautiful thing of God committing to us. Who we are right now and who we, he physically commits. He relationally and physically commits. And he illustrates this numerous ways throughout the Bible to, to illustrate his character. One of the most striking and crazy ways is he goes to a prophet, an Old Testament prophet named Hosea, and he tells Hosea to go out and marry a prostitute. Here's what it says in the book of Hosea, chapter 1, verse 2. Then uh, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Three times. What a word, whoredom. Gotta love saying whoredom. I don't know if you ever said Just turn to the person next to you and say whoredom. It's kind of like, it's one of those words that just rolls off your tongue. You're not calling that person a whore. Just say whoredom. How often do you get the permission to do that in church? That's good times right there. Whoredom. It's in the Bible, people. Come on. We should be able to say things that are in the Bible. Whoredom. Now, what's he saying here? San Hosea, I want you to do in the physical realm what I've done in the eternal realm. I want you to take a person who's going to cheat on you. I want you to take a whore, and I want you to be faithful to her because I've wedded a bunch of whores. I don't know if you ever considered yourself a whore. You probably are. And I'll tell you how you know if you're a whore or not. If you've ever 
Well, there's one way to know. I mean, one way is very obvious if you are not. But now I'm speaking spiritually. Spiritually. These are words and, and stark, crass images God uses in the Bible to help us see reality. If you've ever done something that you knew God wouldn't like, but you knew he would forgive you, you are a whore. If you have ever, if you have something in your life right now that you know God doesn't like, something you're supposed to do and you're not doing, something you shouldn't be doing and you are doing, and you claim to have a relationship with him, you are a whore. I've been a whore. I've had whorish behavior. I've done things. I've abused God's forgiving nature. I go, and I've no, oh, I but I, he'll forgive me. It'll, be, it'll all be good. And here's, what, here's the crazy thing. As offensive as that is, here's the crazy thing. God says, yeah, and I still stick with you. I still relationally commit to you. I still stay there. And how often do our marriages, it's totally different. We go into it as a contract, as a vendor-consumer contract. And, oh, you did that. You broke the, I'm done with you. I'm done. That's it. I, no more for you. I'm out of here. And man, I'm just glad that God is wedded to me in a deeper way than I don't even want to be wedded to live. He's in. He's all in. Always has been. Very first wedding, Adam and Eve. Very first marriage, they didn't have marriage ceremonies necessarily like we have here in America right now, but the very first wedding, Adam and Eve, and it says in Genesis chapter 2, he says, a man shall leave a mother, man shall leave his mother and his father, and the two shall become one flesh, and they, bow, they shall cleave. They become one flesh. One, one translation says they shall cleave. When you cleave, you're in a specific land, cleave land. That's one thing good about cleave. You cleave. <laughs> Cleveland. That, that's what they do. And what's happening there is, now listen, this is, this is so, because this sounds to some like, oh, that's rude. Why are you saying this? This is the real version. This is not, I'm giving you the real stuff. God has created men with unique parts and women with a unique part and women with the unique area that gives and receives. Creator for that. And when a man gives and a woman receives, this verse says very clearly, they're locked together in one flesh. And the physical representation of one flesh mirrors how God has become one with us. And this is, uh, this is why if you claim to be a lover of Jesus and follow God, when you have sex outside of marriage, it's why it's so, so, so offensive to God because you're mirroring the act of oneness and commitment when you're not committed. And God never mirrors something that he is not. He is committed. He is all in. He publicly commits. I'm right here with an altar. This is uh, a representation, an accurate representation of an altar. Many of us think that altars are rooms or areas at the front of a church. That's not an altar. Or an altar is a nice table with a white cloth on it and wine and bread. That's not an altar. Those are representations, more sanitized representations of this. This was an altar. What an altar was in the ancient world, whenever a covenant was made, a binding commitment was made, when someone said, I'm with you, period, done, you would take an animal and you would kill it on the altar and the blood would seal the deal. You would remember that blood was shed. This is a sacred moment. And that's why early on you saw Jesus referred to as the lamb in that verse in Revelation, because the Lamb of God is shed on an altar. Jesus' death on a cross, on an altar, is the thing that signifies and declares to everybody publicly that God has become one with us. In the book of Colossians, it 
teases out this way. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So in ancient cultures, when you were in debt, you would have to go to debtor's prison, work it off, or you would go to work for the person who owned the note. You would work it off, and then once you got out of debt, they would take a, a certificate and they would nail it on the town bulletin board declaring to everybody, this person is now debt free. They are free. And so what it's saying there is all of us are in debt because we're all whores. Gosh, and if you haven't seen that you are, you are what's called deluded. Pridefully deluded. All of us have that gene in us have those activities in us. And God says, all that debt that you are accruing, I've taken that and I put that on the back of the lamb, on the altar, on the cross, nailed it there, and it declares to everybody, you're out of debt. You owe me nothing. You owe nothing. It's canceled. It's done. Let me tell you what. God is so committed that when you come in relationship with him, you know what you owe him? Nothing. Zero. You never work off your past indiscretion. It's done. It's one of the things about knockoff marriage is so difficult. Somebody does, makes a mistake and the other person feels they have to work that off. Oh, I did this, so now I've got I to make sure that, you know, I, I pick up after myself better. Or now I've got to make sure I give them a good vacation because I really screwed up, so I've got to make sure I do. Oh, yeah, right, I, I have no right now to actually talk about how I feel. I've given up that right because I've got to work it off. Made it. Man, they say, no, that, that, that's normal, but that's a knockoff. The expensive beauty of marriage is when you say, no, you're done, done. I've forgiven you. I've forgiven you. And I'm committed to you. And I'll declare it to anybody. I'm committed. I'm all in. Isn't that amazing? This is, so in part, in part ways, if you're not getting this, in part ways, this is sort of a marriage recalibration. In other ways, it doesn't matter if you're single, married, married again. This is the God who loves you. This is crazy. The God is committed to you. That he, he is relationally all in on you. That he forgives. That the Bible says as far as the east is from the west, that's how he looks at your sin. This is the kind of love that God has for you. And when you come into a marriage and somebody starts acting like that, whew, look out, Loretta. Great marriage about to happen. Great, 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 great. This is totally different than any of the kind of unions that go by default, including the ones that happen in churches. Unless you understand this transcendent principle of how much a marriage costs, it's expensive, but it's worth it. Okay, four quick hitters of uh, marriage improvement ideas. Number one, pursue a common vision. Pursue a common vision. You may have a common vision statement for your marriage, that's wonderful if you do, but also on a micro level, what is it that you're trying to do together? Because if you're not doing things together, common vision, you're, you're not gonna be as one as you could be. A number of years ago, Libby and I decided to learn something new together. We said, let's do tennis. So we had some friends give us a little tennis lesson, and then we would go out the park and hit the ball back and forth. Actually, we would go retrieve the ball in the grass more often than we would hit it back and forth. We would do that, and I came home one day on my, um, uh, on my day off, and I said, hey, hon, uh, how about if we, uh, let's go hit the ball today. She says, oh, I can't. I said, why not? She said, oh, I, ha I have a clinic with my friends today. See, she had started doing this tennis clinic thing, and I'm like, what are you talking about? I thought this was an us thing. And I, I got bummed out about that for a while, but then I did the same thing to her. Because I started getting into motorcycling, and she used to ride in the back. We used to ride a lot. And then I wanted to get into more aggressive, more extreme riding. It's harder for a person back there, and she didn't want to do that kind of stuff. So I, I have a sort of a life of my own doing the riding thing right now. And recently, I was hearing some people talk about what it's like to go through South America and Central America across borders. And I said, you know, long term, long term, I like to do that sometime. 
long, so I came home and told Leb, I said, look, long-term future, I want to do that sometime. I want you with me because I, I can't do that by myself. So you either get, you have to get happy being in a sidecar or we need to get you a license. <laughs> so she's actually going to be working on her license for a long-term thing. It's, 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 it's just an idea. If you're with her, is there, what is it that you're doing together. It doesn't mean you're clingy always around each other. No, it's good to separate, have your own things, come back, bring how you've been formed into the relationship. I'm not saying that, but what are the things that you're going after that's a common vision? Number two, number two, schedule sacred meeting times. Schedule sacred meeting times. Date nights. What is your date rhythm night? What are the normal times you get to get that are just sacred? And again, this is relevant in our relationship with God. You don't have to come into a big room like this every single Sunday at 10 o'clock to be one with God. I mean, it's helpful. It's necessary to be, have sacred meeting times with God. In fact, if you don't have a sacred meeting time with God, I can tell you this right now, your relationship with God is on the way downhill. I mean, I know I can't defend out of the Bible, thou shalt go to a big meeting once a week where there's speakers and sound systems to hear the preaching of God's word. I can't necessarily sit, but I can tell you this, everyone I know who gets out of a sacred scheduled meeting time, the relationship with God always falls, always does. And this is the way it is with my relationship with my wife. I've got a sacred meeting time with Lib. It's out in our back deck every night, somewhere around 9.30 or so. Do various things out there. And we go out there. And sometimes we go out there in the back deck and we'll just sit. And the day I go, how's your day? Good day? Yeah, good day. Yeah. I'm tired. Let's go in. Good. Let's go. And we go in. And that's, and that's it. It's like there's nothing more significant. But you know what? That sacred schedule meeting time sets up the other times when you say, man, I had something happen to you that just, just kind of hurt. I'm, I'm really struggling right now. And you share something that's a connection because there's a sacred scheduled meeting time. Make it happen. Number three, expose yourself. Expose yourself. Adam and Eve were naked. They were naked and then a barrier came in their relationship and they started covering up themselves with Fig leaves, expose yourself. Expose yourself emotionally. Expose yourself intellectually, your thoughts, your dreams, your mistakes, your exposures, and physically, might I say. You know, the older you get, those of us who are married a bit longer, the older you get, the harder the sex life is. You know, your, the, the hormones aren't as raging, things are drooping, you know, it's not, you know, it's just not. And, and actually, you can find yourself just sort of not being as butt naked as you used to be. No, no, I'm honest. I'm totally serious here. There's a level of vulnerability when you expose yourself with your spouse. In any way, I mean, the other day I was, I was looking in the mirror and I thought I was kind of in shape. I said, I got a freaking cottage cheese on my rear end. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? You know, I could try to hide that or anything like that. But, you know, marriages are all about vulnerability. Take a risk with your spouse today, emotionally or physically or intellectually. You know, when we start to carve off pieces of our life and, 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 and put them in a closet away from our spouse, nasty stuff grows. Mold always grows in the dark. Always. Expose the light on it. Number four, final one, lose. Lose. Every marriage that's 50-50 is a marriage that isn't working. Everyone, lose. Lose. Because if we go in saying, hey, it's a 50-50 thing, you know, you make the bed 50% of the time, I make the bed 50% of the time, or my 50% is I bring home the bacon, your 50% is you cook it, or, you know, we have this thing. What happens if you enter into a 50-50 thing, then there's a contract, not a covenant, a contract that you have that you're constantly seeing if the terms of the contract are being met. 
And if the terms of the contract are met, then you can kind of withdraw. No, that's not a relationship. God is not looking at us trying to figure out whether or not you're fulfilling the terms of the contract. Maybe I should stick around or not. He is a love that endures. He's faithful. He continues on. And so great marriages consist of two people who lose regularly. I, uh, we, we bought a new used car, a Libs car that she drives around. Not the car I would want. It's a nice car, but not the car I would have bought off Craigslist because the, the, uh, the gas mileage isn't as good as I would have wanted. But she liked it. She loved it. You know, lose. I lose. Great. Great, that's fine. It's worth it to serve you even if it's going to cost a little more money. You want, I'm going to lose that way. You're figuring out what your vacation is. Lose. Lose on the vacation. You have an argument, a parenting philosophy. Lose. Yes, there's rare times. Rare times you say, no, this is an absolute before God and I need to die in this hill. Those are very, very, very rare. In fact, I can't remember the last time that happened with Liv and I. The Bible tells us as men and women to be like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He lost. When he went to this altar, he lost. He laid down his life for his spouse, just like men are to lay down their life for their wives, to die for their wives. When he, when he went from the word up in heaven and came down to this earth, he, went, he took downward mobility. He took a place of humility, just like every wife, every husband needs to take. We took a place of, we lower it, we lose so that later on we get exalted. Lose. Figure out a way this week to lose. And here's the beauty of all this. This is all God. This is your heavenly Father. This is the one who has loved you so much and he showed up by going to an altar of dying. Beautiful. He's, he's so transcendent, isn't he? And we have these truths planted in our hearts even if we don't know him. As a matter of fact, maybe some of us today just heard this one for the first time. Wow. That's a God I like to be married to. You can, you can be wedded to him right now. You can say your vow right now. In the quietness of this place, during this song, you can just say, Jesus, I want to commit to you. I want to receive you. Uh, I, I want to faithfully follow you as best I can all my days. I want to be one with you. That's the kind of prayer in any context God can hear and receive and he acts on. Father, thank you for um, shattering paradigms. We have these shallow paradigms that just don't work. And we want the real thing. We want the thing that is expensive, that is of value. These four expenses, the expense of losing, the expense of scheduled time, the expense of, uh, of giving forgiveness, all these expenses, the common vision, they're expenses that you paid. Thank you. I pray for your blessing and a unique thing to happen in every marriage that's in here or in every relationship that's trending towards the potential of marriage. Help there be clarity. Amen.